Hello everyone, and welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. We are here again for one of our regular episodes where we will be discussing the news, we'll do, be doing a deep dive into a news item, we will be discussing the pandemic and inequality in a section called What's Your View? And then having our regular Iraq updates. I am here. I am Elisa von Jürgen Forgi, your host, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Irene Victoria Massimino and Hoshman Ismael. Our technical oh. producer is Rafi Zarzatian. Hi, you guys. Hi, Hi Ellie. Hi, Hoshman. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome again to our coffee break. I hope you have your coffee or tea ready for another wonderful hour. Yes, thank you Absolutely. for joining us. Thank you all for joining us. Okay, so we're going to start today with news. There's always way too much news related to genocide. Most of it's bad, sometimes good. Um, and we're going to go through, as we do, the various news items that have interested us and that we've seen in the past weeks. Irena, shall we start with you? Certainly. Now that you're saying that, yeah, we do have some good news and some bad news, and some are mixed. So today I brought something about Brazilian indigenous people. Uh, we've been hearing, at least in Latin America, I hope it has reached globally as well, but the, the risks that are suffering different communities of indigenous peoples in Brazil. So recently, The Guardian made an article on the Janomami uh, indigenous people in Brazil. And I quote the title, it says the Janomami could disappear. And this was said by Swiss-born Brazilian photographer Claudia Andujar on these people under threat in Brazil. It's a very interesting article and we will upload it to this uh, regular episode so people can also uh, reach to it. Uh, Claudia Andujar has been working for more than 50 years with the Janomami people and she's been photographing their daily life. She has, uh, she was during the 1970s, like a lot of South American countries, uh, Brazil suffered a dictatorship in countries in the Southern Cone and she was kicked out of the community and she could no longer uh, continue to portray the everyday life of these indigenous communities. Now she's doing uh, um, an, an interesting show of this photography and it's going to be in different countries around the world. What is most interesting about it is just she mentions that these people without this kind of photography and this kind of knowledge, these people will totally disappear. The, what I liked about the article the most is, well, this individual interested in the indigenous people and portraying the everyday life, but also that it highlights the risks that they've been suffering for the last few years. And well, for the last few centuries, actually, but I'll get back to that in a minute. The article highlights that in general, uh, the election of the president, the current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, he's expressed support, support for mining, farmers and loggers in general, plus moves to weaken Brazil Environmental Agency. And we see this not only exclusively in Brazil, but reflected in many countries of Latin America, many countries of Europe, and actually the US as well, right, Ellie, when uh, Trump 
pull out of, of uh, one of the most important documents on, on the environment. Well, and yeah. the extensive deliberate fires that we've seen in the Amazon in 2019, those all of these uh, different conditions together have intensified the climate crisis and, of course, adding to the COVID pandemic in this moment. They have uh, uh, taken a disproportionate toll on Brazilians, on Brazil's vulnerable indigenous communities. So I think this is something we might want to address in the future, um, not only in Brazil, but in all Latin American countries. And I would say, I would affirm in all of the Americas, the perpetuation of the genocide against the indigenous people, the lack of recognition of the genocide committed by the colonial powers, the lack of responsibility of those colonial powers back then, but also now. In particular, in Brazil, there was this Portuguese uh, crown and it was a different independence because they didn't have actually a war of independence. It was the son of the king who actually declared the independence. Unlike in different countries of the Americas where there was a war of independence and establishment of new governments. But anyhow, despite those differences, I don't think it has been properly addressed or addressed at all the problem of the genocide of the indigenous people and the ongoing genocide of the indigenous people. Anyway, the Absolutely. second, yeah, sorry, Ellie, please go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And this pattern of, um, this pattern of, uh, you know, of sort of gaining land by removing people is just an old, old pattern of genocide. And it works so well in our neoliberal organization of the world, um, you know, because it advances, uh, it advances certain efforts to gain certain resources by certain groups and it does so in an age-old fashion of sort of incremental destruction of the land making it uninhabitable and then you know certain clearing actions to get rid of those who still stick around so it's a terrible situation i think we definitely should should look at it and um you know there's no reason to think it won't become even more common Right, so, so it's, it's part of the past, yeah. it's part of the colonial past, but it seems to be becoming a normative method of resource yeah. extraction totally. in the present day. Yeah, I think, I think that it's, it's a kind of still a discriminative policy um, had been practiced in the past, but now in a different way. Yeah. So if you Such see that, that you, yeah, you can, you can kind of link what, what is happening to the indigen indigenous people in Australia, in Latin America, in America, mm -hmm. it happens, same thing happens to the groups do not have enough power to take control. Yeah. And the indigenous, what, what I call and people who are ancestors of their own land and live yes. in their mm -hmm. own land for thousands of years, like, um, yeah. you know, Assyrians, you know, yeah. in, in Turkey, in Iraq. Yeah, or yeah, originally inhabitants of the land. Yes, yeah, yes, original, original, the original, original. inhabitants. Yeah, yes. it's a yeah. you know, the kind of, there is a link between them. And uh, the issue is, I mean, these type of aids and abets or complicity is given by some sort of these companies to explore the lands through the powerful groups in the region. Which have power, you know, and um, we what what we can see now it's happening in Artsakh, right? And I think that there was um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's happening in Artsakh, in, 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 in Turkey, and in Iraq, and Syria, yep. in, in Syria. So, so the same thing, they call them indigen, you know, indigenous people in America or Latin America. The same thing I myself, or we, it's, it's called minority groups. But to say minority yeah. groups, I think we are all agree that minority group is a kind of a word Yes, it, it diminishes. Yes, yes. Je mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, status of these groups, and uh, we should go, you know, in in some ways, less powerful groups. They just don't have power, and um, their situation has been explored and exploited, and then uh, probably they they've been jeopardized of uh, for economic and political gains uh, by, by by these uh, more powerful groups. Yes, yeah, it's amazing. There's a there's a man named Steve Donziger in the United States who's a lawyer who won a sort of historical uh, court case or his history making court case against Chevron uh, in in uh, for the indigenous people of Ecuador. Ecuador is famous case. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and <laughs> he has been so hunted since then by politicians and Chevron in the United States. They have accused him and brought him to trial for bribing a judge in Ecuador for all of these trumped up charges that are just clearly not true. You know, they have very little evidence. Yeah. And yet he's been found guilty. He's on house arrest. He's lost his income. You know, he's facing disbarment, <laughs> I think. Um, we should have him on. He speaks in different podcasts every now and then. But it just shows that, you know, even when indigenous people find allies, <laughs> you know, even when people who are so weak structurally in the international world find allies, those allies end up being treated with the same kind of genocidal logic. They become extinguished mm -hmm. by the very powers, right, that, um, that the allies are trying to challenge. So it's so hard to challenge these powers. And once you get close to it, they're very ready to use everything at their disposal to remove you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a, a kind of less, uh, in, it's an indirect uh, kind of approach yeah. uh, to eliminate those people who support you know, these uh, less powerful groups. So whether they are indigenous or ancestors of those lands and whoever it is, it's the same thing is happening in Iraq. Yeah, um, it's usually persecution of individuals or different groups. Yeah, they would persecute yeah, so, them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, what what you are finding in in America or probably in uh, anywhere else, like in Ecuador, that uh, probably they, I would say they are to an extent lucky that they are under house arrest. If they were in Iraq and then they they speak that in such a way to publicly raise their voice and. Uh, support these groups, uh, they will just get killed. I mean, well, in, it happens yeah. in Latin America, Hoshman. Uh, Latin human America, rights yeah. defenders, okay. one of the most targeted groups in Latin America, especially, for example, in Colombia, is, is one of the countries in highest risk, is human rights yeah. defenders and journalists. So anyone who would uh, defend communities or would be a lawyer of uh, groups that are in disadvantage or minorities are usually called in indigenous peoples are also called minorities in different academic environments, but they would be persecuted and killed. Uh, if you if that happens in Mexico as well, it has one of the highest 
uh, death rates of human rights defenders and and uh, journalists as well. In this particular case, for example, the the news that I'm talking about is as a photographer. She's a photographer yeah. and she was kicked by the militaries in 1977. She was kicked out of that indigenous group where she was living, photographing them, etc., for over 50 years. The nice part of this article is that she's 89 years old now, and I would actually oh. love to get in contact with oh, her somehow. Yes, yeah. and maybe invite her to our show. Look at this passion. I think Look at she's, this passion. Yeah, she's yeah, really. Yeah. She yeah. was, the, I think, her exhibition of photography, her show was, I, I don't remember, but I think it was in Paris and it's going to the US. And no, okay. now it's going to be in London actually, in the Barbican. So she still oh. puts a lot mm-hmm. of effort to protect the identity and to keep alive how these people live in the everyday life. Because wow. usually and unfortunately for them, of course, I mean, the indigenous people are located in, in very wealthy areas of natural resources. Mm. Yeah. And that's yeah, why that's companies, exactly, that's yeah. why companies, t- companies with the complicity of the government or government with the complicity of the company, that's something we can talk about some other day about yeah. the responsibility of business towards human rights. But uh, that's why they set on fire and they would expel them. And then they would use, oh, in other she cases... She must be very proud. Yes, 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 I'm sure. I mean, I would love to yeah. invite her, actually. I, I, I don't know how we could get in touch with her, but maybe with yeah. The Guardian. That would be great. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Well, the, the, in, in those countries where I'm aware is what they do, they, apart from the fact that they kill these journalists, they try to disgrace them. You know, through trying accusing them, uh, so they, they, he was or she was killed because, you know, he. Yes, uh, you mean to create sexual, a, a wrong relationship yes, someone or, else, and mm-hmm. he was killed because of the honor and all. You know these things. You know they they try to put and the the the, the main problem is that uh, they they um, have this ability to Photoshop things and. Uh, you know, to yeah. show the image on um, on the screens that he was actually with someone at this point, and that's why he or she was killed, and make people believe in this constructive thing, kind of. I have a quick yeah. anecdote of this. When I was working in the UK, actually, with a Colombian NGO, and I would love to have my friend and former boss on the show one day as well. Um, I remember we would receive emails uh, of organizations working, you know, lawyers working with human rights, and they would be like, oh, this horrible communist, you know, they try to stigmatize. I think that's what you were trying to say, Hoshman. They try to give a bad reputation to human rights defenders or journalists so that the, their persecution or the killing is somehow justified in the eyes of the community. And it does happen a lot. It happens a lot in Colombia, it happens in Brazil, it happens in many places, unfortunately. Should I move on yeah. to the next news? No, it is now. it is of extreme yeah. I mean this I, I read it yeah. and I I'm, I became really interested in this woman as well because she's she's you know, her age and everything. And being a woman is not easy either. So there's always yeah. all these disadvantages in, in, in countries with high sexism like Latin America, uh, countries in Latin America. So the second news is another one that will probably bring a lot of discussion. It's about, uh, I mean, it's only a, a news update on the BBC, and it's uh, Libya's uh, seized 1,000 migrants off its coast in two days. 
but that's only in two days now in the month of March. Well, actually now in the month of, of April, but in the last month of, of March. And uh, it's one of the highest, actually, one not this particular 48 hours, but it's been one of the highest rates through January and February of this year. And what I wanted, I mean, this was uh, reproduced by the BBC, but it was a report of the International Organization for Migration of the UN. And I wanted to, what I thought when I read it is, well, this, it's ongoing, and we used to see it on the news a lot, but at least uh, since the pandemic, it's not as often, and it continues to happen. And one of the worst in this in these cases of, of at least of the Libyan migrants trying to, to flee Libya, actually, because of a failed state, and we I love to talk about Libya one day also and the responsibility to protect there and the invasion, etc., but it's that this these people were caught by the by the um, the guard the guards of the of of Libya the actual the, the Libyan uh, guard of the sea and they were brought back and imprisoned in Libya for trying to leave flee a country that is that is a failed state that is not working and uh, it also reminded me as well uh, Elisa of our visit with the Pope when he mentioned the refugees and, and how uh, attacked they were instead of being protected and how that could also uh, become a genocide in the future. So I think we'll cover this a little bit more uh, later, but I wanted to bring a, a little bit of refugees. Usually people don't migrate because uh, of good reasons. In general, they I, migrate. I yeah. Sorry? I worked on these issues for two years. So yes. I followed them, how they come, how they go. And yeah. they, have, they, have, they even have like um, uh, slaves in Libya. So they put yeah. them like hundreds on. Exactly. That's uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they put them uh, hundreds in uh, in houses and mm -hmm. uh, they pick they pick and choose them. Right. Which one should be, you know, um, go on board. And uh, even sometimes they choose, you know, the, the woman. They should be left behind. They separate the families from yes. each other. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so there is a lot of issues going on. Uh, and uh, it, it, the, the part one of um, uh, the issue is um, is Libya, as you say, is a kind of um, a, a failed state, a civil war there, and they try to um, bring the, the Africans try to use Libya to get into Italy mm -hmm. um, because I think that they. They are close in terms of yes border. it's a path it's yeah. a good path for for migrants and yeah future it's refugees honestly it's a terrible situation yeah and um, i followed all the way from italy until the you know the united kingdom and even go further and yeah, down to turkey i've, I've mm -hmm. visited there and so how they are uh, how how they are used by the traffickers or in some way or another you know um but it, yeah let so yeah, what I what I wanted to highlight is it's that uh, they they become like a, the double victims, victims of their own country where they have to to flee, and then they become victims of as you mentioned of human trafficking, slavery, yeah. uh, sexual trafficking, and a lot of other human rights violations that uh, will we'll talk a little bit more later on. So I think Ellie, you also brought some news, right? I did, yeah. I did. I just want to say one more thing. Yes. I'm glad you're raising the issue of 
of uh, refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. right, and, and get to some sort of safety or security, because it's one of those stories that has been going on for so long, as you point out, every once in a while, you know, there's some, some kind of horrific tragedy, like a little boy yes. washes up on the beach, and then it's in oh. the news again. Um, but otherwise, you know, people are very, they just seem very ready to forget it, largely because nobody's coming up with any solutions. Yep. How long has this been a problem? Yep. You know, since at least the beginning of, well, even beforehand, but really in a terrible way since the beginning of the Syrian war yep. and, it, and it, the uh, NATO attack on Libya. So, so <laughs> you know, this is 10 years now, a decade now of this being in the headlines. and. And it hasn't done much. No, it's, it's a terrible. It's, situation. it's like uh, the naturalization of certain conflicts. I yeah, believe you yeah. know, like uh, the Cuban embargo. It's been there right. forever, and it's right. uh, it's sucking the 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 blood out of Cubans or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as well. Mm -hmm. They're naturalized so much that we we sort of uh, get used to living with them, and that's a huge problem. It is mm -hmm. a huge problem. You know, we pat ourselves on the back as a species for being able to now, we got to Mars, right? So if mm -hmm. we can do that, we can solve these problems. Yes. I mean, I know you guys know that. It's just so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it is frustrating. <laughs> I agree. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's horrid. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> certainly. Oh, well, on that note, let's, <laughs> let's go to more news. Um, <laughs> All right, so there's an update on Ethiopia. There seems to be more evidence of genocidal violence coming out of the Tigray region. Doctors there have said in the past week that rape is being used as a weapon of war in Ethiopia. Um, and some doctors have called it, here's a quote from one doctor, practically genocide. So there are over 500 documented cases of rape now, mostly of Tigrayan women, it seems, and that the Tigray people are 5% of the overall Ethiopian population, so a very small minority population. Um, the women are being gang raped, drugged, held hostage. There was one woman whose vagina was stuffed with stones, nails, and plastic. Oh I apologize. Um, women are being raped, gang raped in front of their family members who are prevented from helping them, and men are being forced to rape family members. Oh. Um, and this is some of the work that I do on, on genocidal atrocity, but this sort of violence is, in my mind, very genocidal. It's, it's indicative of genocidal intent because of its... Um, because of its comprehensive nature and the way in which it sets out to completely defile and destroy a person, but a person as part of a larger group. group. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Violence, especially when it's used so symbolically, such as making men uh, rape their family members, where you invert these hierarchies of trust and responsibility and you make people turn against themselves, usually because you're told if you don't do this, we'll kill you all, mm -hmm. but frequently people are still killed afterwards, do you know? And so these rituals are things that in all genocides we see perpetrators engage in. And so for me, whenever we see this in other sorts of conflicts or conflicts that we have yet to name, 
it's a, a red flag for genocidal for a genocidal process. So yeah, absolutely. Think, so early warnings, early warnings. An early warning, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I don't even know if it's that early. Actually, it's kind of a late warning, I would well, think, yeah, because it's. I mean, it yeah. it destroys if it, like you mentioned, it destroys the different groups, the family entity, not only the individual exactly. but the family entity, and then the social entity of that specific group. Yeah destroying yeah. that solidarity and cooperation amongst them and that yeah. perpetuates in time how do you recover from that afterwards it's right it's well we see so, with the yazidi how hard yeah. it is to recover after yeah. it's right? almost you know i don't want to say impossible yeah. but it it can be it's hard it's hard it puts mm -hmm. extra strains on the cohesion of the group and the women who have been raped have been told things. They've mostly been raped by Ethiopian and Eritrean soldiers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they who are taking photos while raping them, which is another has become kind of a genocidal pornography that yes. we've seen Turkish soldiers and ISIS soldiers, right? And all sorts of militias, the Syrian militias sent to um, Artsakh as well, you know, we're doing the media, this. the media involved to now help. that we have this, to, to, this to phone. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the one sent to Azerbaijan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. I meant the involvement now of the media, everyone having a phone, everyone has access yeah. to Internet. And it's sort of like a publicity of their actions. That's how I felt with ISIS. You know, ISIS was like that, yeah. just making publicity. I don't know if it's to gain adepts, but of course to 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 create terror in the community, and totally. and and I don't know. Um, I mean, it's well, it happened with the Rohin, Ro Ro sorry, the Rohingya as well, and yeah. exactly in, on Facebook uh, because of the hate speech against them as well. Yeah. So there is is this common pattern, pattern for the few years. It's a common pattern, isn't it? It's a common yeah. pattern. Yeah. yeah, pattern. Yeah, remember how surprised we were, Irina, when we found out from Christians in Christian IDP camps in northern Iraq in Kurdistan that um that ISIS was calling them. Yes. You know, when from from Mosul and other places where they're where their parents or grandparents were stuck because yeah. the older people stayed behind, that ISIS would call them and taunt them and say, we have your parents and, you know, why aren't you back here taking care of them? Why aren't you protecting them? Again, kind of using the family against itself, right? Using these responsibilities that we have to one another in our families against us. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. uh, because of creative fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah certainly. Create mm -hmm. fear. Create it's destroying the identity, isn't yes. it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. If you can, if you can insert in people this sense that they are somehow responsible for the horror that you're doing as a perpetrator, then you've kind of made them responsible for genocide, yeah. and you insert that into you know. And we know with epigenetics, and we know with transgenerational trauma, that mm -hmm. this continues down the the line. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Certainly. So, is it is it possible to just give some background about this group and why they uh, are doing what well Yeah, we'll get back to this. We'll certainly yeah, get back yeah. to this. Back mm -hmm. to it. We we need we need an expert from from the region, I think, right? We certainly. Well, I'm not that familiar with the with this particular region either and with this conflict. So we need an expert on this. I don't want to get it wrong because it's mm -hmm. gotten very complicated. Like most of the the crimes seem to be committed by Ethiopian and Eritrean soldiers. Mm. However, there's also kind of a lower level dispute between the Tigrayans and the Amharans, mm -hmm. right? 
over a specific part of land. And so the Amharans have um, have been forcing Tigrayans off of land that they that the Amharans see as traditionally their own land. It seems that 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 forced displacement has not occurred with the same level of genocidal mm -hmm. violence as is being committed by the Ethiopian and Eritrean soldiers. But but the U.S. State Department has called what the Amharans are doing ethnic cleansing. And so there's sort of layers of, and we've seen this before, when you have the big elephants fighting, right, oftentimes lower, you know, sort of foot soldiers or marginalized groups will also fight one another uh, for disputed territory or something. So. Um, so this has become very complicated, and I and I certainly don't want to get wrong who's doing what. And mm. That's probably why it's being called yeah, also ethnic yeah, cleansing, because usually ethnic when ethnic. when there is not clear what is happening, they call it ethnic cleansing, because that's not yeah, an it, that's not an international not, crime. <laughs> that's right, not an inter international crime. They could call. No, because they, they don't want to say genocide or something. Yes, they don't want to say genocide. Maybe they don't have enough evidence yet or even to say crimes against humanity. So usually they call ethnic cleansing, which is not a crime. So it would be, I don't know, maybe historical element or... I think uh, in some ways ethnic cleansing is part of genocide. Yes. Yes, yes, but, it, you know, it not is. legally. That's... that's uh, Well, it's not a It's No, they just have not recognized the kind of, under the international um, criminal law as a separate international, no. I think, um, mm. crime, crime, you know, by their own statute, but otherwise it's just a pattern of genocide. Probably. You can I, call it internally, it's certainly. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I think it's Part a pattern, it. and I think we need to see it that way because most genocides play themselves out this way. Right yeah. through massacre and ethnic cleansing, and so if we if we don't recognize ethnic cleansing as a pattern of genocide, then we're never going to be able to well, prevent it. It seems to me. So I agree yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think and they that, haven't recognized it yet because they would stop using ethnic cleansing yeah. then, and they would have to come up with another <laughs> sort of word. yeah another word to call instead of then genocide is banned to said then ethnic <laughs> cleansing would be banned and then. They'll have well, to come up with we something can keep else. Chasing them so they don't have words, you know. We can keep <laughs> chasing them down. Certainly. But you know, at the word, I mean, the term ethnic cleansing comes from the Serbs, and they use yep, the term they, yeah. to yes. describe what they were doing in Bosnia. It's the most ridiculous thing. So why are we using this term that was used by genocidaires <laughs> to describe their genocide without using the word genocide? Exactly. I mean, honestly, right? That's that. So the term has a very ugly history, it seems yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't like the term. Yeah. But anyway, so the Amharas have been accused of ethnic cleansing, but they were also massacred on November 9th, 2020, by what it appears now journalists are saying, by Tigrayan youth and local Tigrayan security forces. So over, so hundreds of Amhara civilians were killed um, in, in on November 9th. And so this is, it's very, very complex. And it's one of those mm -hmm. situations where you may have mutually genocidal forms mm -hmm. of violence, right, occurring underneath a, um, a much larger political and military conflict that's fueled by state forces, right, who seem really to have, to have been, um, been responsible for most of the violence. Eritrea has denied, of course, all allegations, and it has even denied being in Tigray, until last week, March 26th, when it announced it will withdraw. 
from this place that it was never in. Oh, okay. You know, it's a, it's a typical kind of thing. <laughs> and I just want to point out that the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, won the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, wow. For his oh, wow. efforts to bring... I think they the should start selecting the Nobel Peace uh, Prize better because we've had issues recently, yes. We've had issues recently, that's right, yes. you know? Right, so we can yeah, see how many Nobel Peace Prize winners have engaged in mass atrocity. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that will be a study that, that we can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the subject of Unbelievable. So that's poor Ethiopia. That's what's going on in Ethiopia. Um, a quick update on Myanmar. As we know, by now more than 420 uh, people have been killed, most of them while protesting the new coup, the recent coup. This includes now children um, as young as five years old have been killed by the Tatmada. Thousands of others have been assaulted, detained, and tortured. Uh, last Saturday on March 27th, over 100 uh, people were killed in one day. Um, there's a wonderful article in the New York Times called Inside Myanmar's Army, They See Protesters as Criminals, that describes the culture of the Tat Madaw yes. in a very interesting way. So I'm just going to quickly read it. The vast majorities of officers and their families live in military compounds. Their every move monitored. Since the coup, most of them have not been able to leave those complexes for more than 15 minutes without permission. I would call this situation modern slavery, said an officer who deserted after the coup. We have to follow every order of our seniors. We cannot question if it was just or unjust. Officers as children often marry other officers as children or the progeny of tycoons who have profited from their military connections. Often foot soldiers breed the next generation of infantrymen. The ecosystem of the State Administration Council, as the junta that grabbed power last month calls itself, is a tangle of interconnected family trees. Um, I would I would say oh. that actually Myanmar is very interesting. Ellie, this article because um, I would say that actually Myanmar. Uh, the, the rule is to have a military dictatorship, and the exception was, uh, maybe we can call it a, a, not a real democracy, right? Uh, I think a lot would agree with that. A lot of people would agree uh, during the, the government of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, uh, but it's, that's the rule, that the Tatmada yeah. is in power. Yeah, yeah. Precisely, yeah. and it's such a what you know what I what 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 really impressed me about that quote was the kind of closed nature of the group that the Tatmada is. Yeah. So that because a lot of the violence that it's now committing against uh, citizens of Myanmar, right, resembles the violence that it's committed against uh, ethnic minorities like the Rohingya, yeah. mm -hmm. right. And actually, there's a wonderful here. I have another quote. Uh, by a um, journalist named Sebastian Strangio for a outlet called The Diplomat. And he noted that the violence of the military's long-term project of internal colonization yeah. has returned home. Oh, that's right? fantastic. So yeah, what a great quote. What a great quote. Yeah. And so seeing how, and it makes a certain amount of sense. Um, well, number one, that's a pattern that we often see, right? Mm -hmm. 
But it, but with this very closed group, it's almost as if the Tatmada has become an ethnicity unto itself, <laughs> right? That sees itself. Um, here I have another quote. Yeah, as superior to the rest of society, as yes, being allowed yes. to establish the morality of society. Yes. That's yeah. That's how I perceived from from the situation okay. to establish the morality, the beliefs, and the the sanctions yes. and everything. Certainly. Yeah, so their own group. Mm -hmm. And they've developed, it appears, a paranoid, sort of zero-sum cosmic um, ideology of enem being surrounded mm -hmm. by enemies, very yeah. much like, like Genesee dares do. So in the New York Times article, the guy, the reporter continues, the cloistered nature of the Tatmada may help to explain why its leadership underestimated the intensity of the opposition to the putsch. Officers trained in psychological warfare regularly plant conspiracy theories about democracy in Facebook groups favored by soldiers, um, according to social media experts, etc., etc. In this paranoid world, the thumping that Miss Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy delivered to the military's proxy party in last November's elections was easily portrayed as electoral fraud. A Muslim cabal funded by oil-rich sheikhdoms is accused of trying to destroy the Buddhist faith of Myanmar's majority. Influential monks who count army generals among those praying at their feet preach that the Tatmada and Buddhist monkhood must unite to combat Islam. In the Tatmada's telling, a rapacious West could conquer Myanmar at any moment. Fear of invasion is thought to be one reason that military rulers moved the capital early in this century from Yangon near the coast to the landlocked plains of Napidal. Yeah, so, you can see a lot of things that uh, all religion now use as a tool. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah as a tool for, you know, by, by, by uh, uh, those powerful, I mean, those people who are in power and um, they, they really want to use religion to um, um, kind of put their um, will and impose it on the society and uh, and just um, enrich their own power and um, so it's terrible this is the same I think the same pattern is going around the world yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's been 20th century and 21st are sort of similar yeah similar Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, it's a, it's a terrible situation. Related to that, um, you know, there was a recent fire that I'm sure, you know, everyone has read about in Cox's Bazaar, the enormous sprawling refugee camp for yes. Rohingya refugees, where it's estimated over or maybe at least 15 people were killed. Mm -hmm. There was that riveting story of a mother who was who has lost one of her little sons in the fire. She doesn't know or they haven't found him, but she can't find him. And it's just a horrific thing to think about happening to people who've already been uprooted. Yes. Um, you know, the numbers are that now, after the fire, which raged for an entire day, uh, there are 48,000 refugees displaced within a the, refugee Yes, doubly displaced. Doubly displaced. 9,500 shelters were destroyed, 1,600 facilities were destroyed, meaning, you know, clinics and schools and other necessary facilities, um, you know, and so I looked into what's been do being done since then, and the UNHCR has done a lot, as a matter of fact, it has a pretty good team 
rapidly responding to this. But one of the things I noted is that it states that it's supporting initiatives to rebuild, ensuring higher quality shelters adhering to minimum standards. Mm-hmm. Which means, of course, that the shelters that were burning did not adhere to minimum standards. No, the shelters, yes. Yeah. The shelters in the, I, I, I was there twice. I was there in 2017, December, three months after people left, and uh, then in 2019 as well. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I recognize, uh, I strongly actually support the action of Bangladesh because Bangladesh in the, in the period of three months received almost a million people. And when that was happening, I remember Europe, European countries complaining that they were re- had 400,000 refugees or something like that in a long <laughs> period of time. So whenever I teach a class on refugees, I always say that actually the majority of refugees are not in developed nations. On the contrary, Absolutely. there are in developing nations, like in the case of Bangladesh, who has done a lot a lot and I'm sure there are critics and there are things that we can talk about and the the lack of uh, resources but Bangladesh is one of the most poor nations in the world actually so to have received that amount of people is for me is amazing and it's a a proof of solidarity however the conditions of course are like in any refugee camp is they're terrible and they improved it was the first time in my life where I've been to a refugee camp that was actually better after the first time I went there. So it was better, but still the conditions are terrible. The the, the shelters are made of uh, natural elements. Uh, mm. So I think they would easily catch on fire unless, you know, it's like monsoon time. But it, when it's monsoon time, also the, the suffering from the rain and the, and the mud and and of course all the different diseases of the camps and of the area as well you know malaria is very common in bangladesh and diphtheria i think is in english i can't remember i think it's diphtheria and even hiv etc so um the reality is 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 bad Uh, i'm surprised that unhcr did something (laughs) Yeah, oh, they've done a lot, actually. That's good. We'll, post yeah. their, we'll post yeah. their little report on what they've done. That's good. But I mentioned it because I think a lot of people assume that refugee camps are, are a little bit different than, than yes. what they are, which mm-hmm. is that they're more organized, more orderly, that if people reach a refugee camp, they've reached a place of safety. Mm-hmm. We know that internal security in refugee camps is very low, right? So, um, and particularly the living situation, we saw that in Iraq, uh, mm-hmm. where, where the refugee, the IDP camps kept getting worse year after year, it appears. Um, but we were surprised, remember, to hear that <laughs> that there's no sort of, I, I don't know why I was surprised, but there were, there's no one sort of tent that is used across refugee camps. So when, like... When tents start to fail and when you need replacements, right? Yeah. They're hard to get the parts that actually fit because there's so many different providers of these tents and there has been no international effort to sort of combine forces and come up with a single tent design that would make it easier to get, you know, mm-hmm. patches. So yeah. it's a it's a terrible situation all around and something we also need to talk more about is refugees. If there are 80 million refugees in the world, 
Um, you know, and if most refugee camps are, are permanent or semi-permanent, yeah. people are never able to go home, then we have to accept that reality mm-hmm. and start responding that way, then under the pretense that somehow these are, that this kind of makeshift living is okay because it's temporary. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, right, if that's true. Certainly in history that hasn't been no. the case. I, I was in Aida refugee camp in Palestine and it's a refugee camp yeah. from the Uh, the beginning of the of the war so it's yeah it has houses of made of uh actually concrete and it's a refugee camp people are born with refugees and maybe one one day we can have a podcast on refugees because the implication it has maybe people think oh you're just a refugee well you don't have the same rights as a citizen you don't have a in many cases you don't have a citizenship you're actually stateless so it's a complex very complex scenario it's a very very complex scenario And people can can be can born in a refugee camp, and then they're refugees from from birth, and they yeah. they die as refugees. So it's an, yeah. it's an awful awful situation. It really is, and it's just getting worse. We just have more and more mm-hmm. refugees. Yeah. As as this century goes on, mm-hmm. so clearly we have to take a different approach to things. Yeah. Um, my last, I know we've done a lot of discussing of our news items, <laughs> but the last news item is this, and this is sort of good news in a way. Um, uh, a new report that was commissioned by President Emmanuel Macron of France has found that France um, has overwhelming responsibility for the Rwandan genocide, right? It cleared France of complicity for the genocide Mm -hmm. because it did not find any evidence. France opened up, to its credit, it opened up its archives to 15 historians who had sort of incredible open access to whatever was available. Um, But they did not find any evidence that there was complicity, that France had an intent to engage in genocide. But rather, and this is sort of damning, that uh, the failure of France in Rwanda, this is a quote, the causes of which are not its own can be likened in this respect to a final imperial defeat, all the more significant because it was neither expressed nor acknowledged. Um, And what they argue is that France had colonial era views of the different groups there and sort of, you know, these kind of tribal clashes and that that colonial discourse made it blind to what was actually happening and prevented it from responding in a sane way to what was going on there. I'm, I'm glad. I This is one of probably one of the best news I've heard. I think this is one of the first times, and correct me guys if I'm wrong, that a country is actually taking responsibility for its colonial past. You know, yeah. I'm always thinking of the, going back to the indigenous people of the Americas, that the countries are not responsible, and of course they are, for the, for the, for the, for the human rights violations of the indigenous communities currently, but what happens with the past, what's happened with the Spanish crown, for example, or Spain today, it has never acknowledged uh, the hundreds of thousands, the millions of indigenous people that it killed during the, during the, uh, well, the conquest is not a good word, not as the discovery, I I despise that word, Um, but uh, during the time, over 300 years of colonialism in, in, in the Americas, and there's no acknowledgement, no responsibility on the past. And I will look for one 
interesting discourse of former president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, when he pointed yeah. this out and he said, we owe an external debt to the monetary fund, to the international monetary fund, etc., Latin American countries. And yeah, we probably asked for money. We have that responsibility to pay back. But yet, no colonial power will return the hundreds of thousands of millions of kilos of gold and silver that they took from the Americans, the Americas, and they will not pay pay, uh, compensation for all of the deaths and the killings in the Americas, even the plagues. They brought plagues and everything that extinguished a lot of communities because the indigenous people were not used to, were not exposed to a lot of the disease that the Spaniards and the uh, brought to or the Portuguese brought to the to the Americas. So I think it's great. It's it's a wonderful news, Elisa. I'm, yeah. I'm glad. Let's yeah. see what where it, it leads in the future, right? Yeah. What yeah. reparation? Yeah. What sort of reparation, right? What sort of reparation will France take? Because I yeah. think Europe owes many European countries owe reparations to many countries in in what is called that I don't like either the global south or the developing nations, no? Like the British Empire and the colonies, the 67 colonies it had before the the war. I mean, it's unbelievable. Second World War. We need a redistribution, a global redistribution of wealth. Yeah. In a more equitable way, yeah. Certainly. But we could start, you're right, with colonial reparations. Mm -hmm. Certainly. No, it's it's important that France has acknowledged this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anything else, Hoshman? Do you have something to share for news? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Hoshman had to wait a long time. <laughs> We've taken so long for the news today. <laughs> we promised That's to keep it shorter. <laughs> I, I have a head injury, so this is why I am managing this podcast differently, I think, than in the past. No, no, I was enjoying it. I was enjoying it. I was uh, completely thinking about the complicity because that's exactly what I am expert on and uh, thinking about the kind of aiding and abetting and complicity and what happened in um, Rwanda and about the Belgian uh, role in that uh, situation and uh, of course there are so many books written and probably you find a lot when you just write google it complicity in Rwandan genocide so you will find uh, very sensitive information of what happened um, just the day before the genocide broke out and uh, you will find many countries uh, which have been involved including the United Nations they didn't take the uh, take on the role that they should they should have. Uh, um, yeah, it was very interesting. Very interesting. Um, it is. Um, so the issue of complicity remains open, is what you're saying, Hashman, and and we should yeah. we should perhaps explore that more also in a specific podcast. Yeah, complicity. In the yeah, world. yeah, yeah, definitely. Maybe France is being let off too easy um, here. But the problem is, I mean, they have tried to distort the um, the, the con- legal concept of complicity. Well, I, for me, okay, in, yeah. in some ways, they says whoever is complicit, you know, and to go under the international law, is that person who aids or abets or it's accessorial. But for me, complicit is more than an accessory to the crime. 
probably is a person who's behind the crime. And there have been a lot of, uh, so many cases, and many judges uh, think that uh, those uh, who are behind the crime and um, they are named complicit um, probably are, uh, they take the role more than just um, Ada or Abeta. But then, yeah, we, we should like um, dedicate one of our podcasts to explain, you know, these. Uh, very vague and complicated concept of complicity. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm going back to Iraq actually, and then after seven years now, the Sinja or Shingal, it's again under a very um, horrible situation that the Iraqi army and uh, the Iraqi government had set a specific date for the forces um, that now. Um, what they, they what they what they say is loyal to the PKK or YPG or YP, uh, uh, the the forces um, uh, originally um, saved the people of Yazidis. They have set a date to leave Sinjar, and um, by saying that, that means um, leaving those um, forces. Uh, it means that going going back. Um, going back of the KDP and the Iraqi army uh, to Sinjar or Shingal, which originally could not protect the Yazidi people from ISIS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely terrible. And um, so what they say that those um, forces, uh, which are, they are called Asaish or security, and um, uh, and yeah, um, of course, and um, uh, the force, uh, you know, the other forces. Um, they really, um, if they leave, I think I will expect another genocide in the region, and especially when uh, mm. there is a camp called Al Hol camp. It's only about twenty kilometers uh, away. And it's located in Syria, in the north uh, of Syria, and contains about 60,000 members, or probably uh, not all of them are eligible to say they are members of ISIS, mm -hmm. but either uh, about 40,000 uh, ISIS members, maybe, or part of uh, the ISIS dynasty in the past, and their families and children. And then for the last four, three, four years, these children are grown up in a camp without any education. And uh, the only thing they know that, uh, I think the last time we spoke about it too, um, they know that is um, anyone who is not covered up in hijab should be killed, especially women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's a, a terrible situation going on there. And now the international community do not take any responsibility. And I, what I will call this camp is a kind of a nuclear bomb. Yes. If, if it explodes, imagine suddenly 20 to 30,000 ISIS come out of these prisons or camps. And also these children who at the time they're only 10 years old, now 15, 16 years old, 
and brought up in an environment of violence, yes. Only, mm-hmm. Yeah, it had only been taught about violence and hating people, mm-hmm. hate speech, and, um, and dehumanization of uh, kind of the groups who live in the area. Um, and that is really um, scares me. Um, on the one hand, that um, those groups, uh, because they were established just the day that ISIS attacked Sinjar region, when all the other forces left the Yazidis alone. Mm-hmm. So these groups who came from, you know, from the Kurds in Rojava or at the ta- yeah they call Rojava or the Kurdish Authority. They try to organize the Yazidis in units, and then these Yazidis now they have tried to um, arrange military units as well as security forces to protect their own community. Mm-hmm. And under the pressure of Turkey, the Iraqi government um, now um, has set a specific date and time for these forces on the 1st of April which is about just a couple of days um, from now, um, so uh, to leave the area. And um, for all this, um, we, I, I, I expect a, a, a terrible situation. So this is uh, really uh, a news from my side um, about uh, what is going on in Iraq, um, because we, I don't want to carry on, just in case we run out of time. I don't no, to but this is important, Hoshman, yeah, be- because yeah. what you're saying is that, the, I mean, maybe people, uh, well, I'm sure people are informed, but in some places we, we don't receive that many news and the news with the detail you're giving it, right? And maybe people think because Mosul, for example, was liberated as, you know, as the capital of the caliphate, then ISIS is defeated. And it's totally the opposite of that, right? Uh, the situation seems like, uh, and my question is that not only the Yazidi would be maybe targeted. Do you think other groups as well, like the KK or the Christians, are at risk? Or the Shabak, yeah, the Shabak Shia yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean ISIS do not recognize them. Any, any, um, yeah. uh, and doesn't make a different differentiate them or um, it calls them. You know, each of them are categorized, right? So. Mm-hmm. The the for example the Shia who who are also Muslims they live in the area they call them Rafizin Rafizin means those who who were Islam but then they refused Islam and now they follow another sect of so they are not mm-hmm. uh, the Shia um, they, like the first thing they will do according to their categorization and their fatwa. Mm-hmm. Is they kill them, so they don't have any options. So even if the Yazidis or Christians have options to become a Muslim, mm-hmm. the the Shia Muslims do not have even this uh, option. Mm. And the same with Kakei uh, and Yazidi. So mostly, you know, um, they they they, um, they see them as within the same category. And also the Jewish people and Christians, they say they are Ahl Kitab and they have a different kind of rules. Yeah, so what, what we saw that even they took their women and they asked yeah. them to yeah. pay money and they, even they killed them, you know, and yes. they used them for many, many purposes. Yeah, uh, so 
Uh, yeah, the rise of ISIS is a terrible, not for the region, uh, not for Iraq, I think um, for the whole international community. And mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, the world should take care of um, uh, of the region and um, especially those camps which uh, which are kind of um, um, a bomb and whenever it explodes, probably not the people in the region, but um, the whole international community uh, will be affected. Yeah, yeah, a ticking bomb, you mean, right? A ticking bomb, like a, yeah, yeah. Just ticking, yeah. time bomb. Yeah, it reminds me of the camps after the Rwandan genocide, where mm -hmm. Hutu power militias sort of ruled the camps in neighboring um, Democratic Republic of Congo, okay. mm -hmm. and continued to attack Rwanda after it was under the um, RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, right? Um, after it came under the control of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, these these Hutu power groups would still attack Rwanda from mm -hmm. the from the refugee camps. Yes, yes, yes. In the yeah. Democratic Republic of Congo, it reminds me of that, where you have, you know, sort of the genocidal groups just miles away from the groups they have genocided. Mm -hmm. You know, in camps where they're allowed to um, kind of proliferate their ideology and continue their organizing. It's a very dangerous thing. We've seen it before, and it doesn't go away on its own accord. No, no, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's, um, ISIS is becoming very powerful. It's not only spread in the Middle East, it's in Europe now, and it is in Africa. Um, Africa. Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Africa. Mm -hmm. And uh, I tell you now the last time um, when we had the guest, and uh, he said that it's also in Pakistan, isn't it? Yeah, right. He said yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the news Gorgon, on Mozambique are, are on uh, the. Gorgon said, yeah. Yeah, Gorgon said yes. yes no, but yes, the the yes, situation yes. in Mozambique is becoming quite complex as well, and it's yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's ISIS. It's recognized as ISIS. So they recognized yes. recently. Daesh, mm -hmm. right? As Daesh. ISIS. Mm -hmm. Daesh, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So right. it's it's uh, it's. it's very rapidly spreading around the world, and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and they could explode any time, anywhere. Well, yes. so, yeah, we all have our work cut out for us working in genocide prevention um, but it's it's great I, I you know I I'm very happy the way we're able to um, shine a light on these different corners of the world that that are of particular concern and have interrelated problems yes you know um, so one of the goals we have of course is that people who are affected by these situations can communicate with one another um, more so that they can uh, at the grassroots level, right? Mm -hmm. Think of approaches to these problems that don't leave them perpetually as passive, as victims, you know, as refugees, as IDPs, uh, but that they can become, uh, they, can, they can sort of uh, exercise more agency mm -hmm. in determining their own fates. So, uh, yeah, so thank you guys for all those news items. Very much appreciated. So well, we thank you. This has been a Thank long. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you know, you are very, very brave after all uh, this fall and back the head injury. The past, yes, the head injury, and now that you try to organize this for us, asking us questions, you know, and uh, 
you know, um, warm up the discussion. So it's not easy, honestly. Yeah, we're I, um, sort of falling apart in our podcast. Our, our audience My knows now your, about your accident. Yes, the audience right. knows. Yeah. 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 You need to stay standing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone knows she's much better. So yeah. Yeah. almost <laughs> fully recovered. Yeah. I don't know what I would have done without Hoshman and, and Irena. <laughs> what I missed the most last sure. week was was our podcast, I yes. have to say. So I'm so happy to be back. So should we just quickly mention, just very briefly, the statement we made? So people, yeah, yeah just times, two yeah, minutes. No, yeah, I just wanted on. to mention that um, Turkey, we have bad news about Turkey uh, almost uh, in every session, right? But unfortunately, recently has left uh, the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating violence against women and domestic violence, uh, best known as the Istanbul Convention. We made a public statement in the Iraq Project for Genocide Prevention. It's You can find it on our website, expressing our concerns for leaving this, as it has been actually publicly said by a lot of women in Turkey, a lot of demonstrators, a lot of women's rights movements have gone to the streets because of this situation. So um, we just wanted to make a quick mention and I'm sure Elisa will upload it to the session as well so people uh, can read our statement. Yes, absolutely. I think that's perfect. And mm -hmm. it's something we'll be discussing more yes. um, in future podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's part of the pattern of Turkey's sort of behavior in the region. So we'll yeah. discuss it mm -hmm. well it's terrible to come off and it's called the Istanbul Convention yeah <laughs> it was signed in Istanbul I know that's what I thought yeah. Turkey is yeah. withdrawing the Istanbul Convention wow convention <laughs> this is very funny <laughs> You know, and, and we just recognize that pulling out of human rights conventions is a red flag. It, it sets the mm -hmm. stage for the commission yeah. of mass atrocities, which Turkey has already been committing, you know, against Kurds and against against other groups. Also, it seems to have uh, abetted, aided and abetted the commission of mass atrocities against Armenians in the Artsakh war mm -hmm. through Azerbaijan Sergeant. and Syrian militias. So, um, you know, so but this is just another step. Uh, in this kind of radicalization that seems to be happening in Turkey. And we also recognize the link between gender-based violence mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. mass atrocity. And I think that's something we're going to ex be exploring a lot. It's something that, you know, is only recently really being recognized in, in the scholarly literature. And uh, I think links between femicide and genocide are mm -hmm. incredibly important. And so that's what we wanted. We just simply wanted to highlight that with an official statement. Yeah, and so I think today I do. We still have time to discuss in your view, right? So this is a section where we discuss uh, difficult issues, pressing issues, issues that are on their own minds. We believe of a lot of people worldwide, and we invite your responses. So if you have, if you have responses for us. Uh, please do email them to us at info at irakproject.org. That's info at irakproject.org. Or you can ask these questions on Patreon as well. Beneath this episode, um, you will see uh, space for comments. And these are questions that we will take up in future podcasts.
so we're, today we're going to be talking about the pandemic and inequality, um, which has been, you know, an issue in the news since the pandemic struck. And it became clear that, uh, you know, within places um, around the world, within, for example, the developed economies, certain groups of people were being hit harder by the pandemic, largely because of inequality. So in the United States, the hardest hit groups are African-Americans, Latinos and Native Americans who have the highest rate of death and hospitalization and infection with COVID in the United States. There are similar patterns in other developed and developing economies. It just seems like those who are at the bottom rung of the international economy are, are faring the worst. And of course, this this pattern reasserts itself now with the question of the vaccine, where I looked it up, you know, and there um, uh, there have been suggestions that the developed world is hoarding vaccines. And there's some remarkable data that shows that Canada has bought so many vaccines that it could vaccinate 500% of its current population and oh. the UK has bought so many vaccines that it could vaccinate 300% of its population. So, um, well, it's probably, so we mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, well, well, Where the well. is going and why there's a dearth of vaccine in, in the so-called developing world. Yes, yeah. I, I also wanted to say that, like you said, there's two aspects of this pandemic that highlight the inequality of the world. When you said about how it has, the, the pandemic has hit strongly uh, or stronger other groups or countries uh, that are less developed and that have more difficulties in the health system and also the methods of uh, sort of stopping the pandemic have been very difficult i've been trying to explain this to a lot of people that it's very difficult for example in latin american countries for people to stay home because many people don't have a home so not only the pandemic hit differently, but also the way the methods of addressing the pandemic have been very different and therefore have limited the efforts of stopping the pandemic. And also the vaccines, as you mentioned, we can see that clearly countries, uh, well, I hardly hear what is happening in Africa, for example, it's like a completely forgotten continent of what happens with the people there, of the, with the vaccines, with the pandemics, etc. All I read in the news is mainly about Europe or the US, actually, the USA. But the other part of the pandemic also is that it has shadowed or covered so many other issues that are essential or as important as uh, the pandemic, for example, refugees, conflicts, the, the, everything that we were reading today, it sort of be, it becomes little in the news or smaller in the news than it was before. And refugees haven't stopped to become refugees. I mean, persons, individuals haven't stopped to become refugees. Uh, problems, high rates of poverty, lack of education, etc. So many other human rights violations that we can see. And of course, access to health, etc. So I think there's so many aspects to analyze. And, you know, the conclusion we, we see is that we live in such an unequal societies and it doesn't seem that this pandemic has helped. On the contrary, it has helped to make them more profound and more and more um, more profound and even stronger. I think they will last longer in the future, unfortunately, these inequalities. Yeah, yes, certainly. Um, 
definitely it has affected um, 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 even Southeast Asia. We we don't hear much news about yeah. them, isn't it? Not Southeast Asia, not the African countries, not the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Some parts of the Middle East. I mean, and, um, uh, Emirate is doing very well. I think um, Emirate and Israel has already completed yes. the first vaccination of the whole population, I believe. And um, now they are trying to do the second stage of vaccination, which is within supposed to be within 21 days. And uh, they do. And uh, this is, um, now, uh, as you said, you know, UK... Uh, has um, bought a lot of um, uh, so many of them but um, uh, announced that they will give the extra one or the surplus one to Ireland Um, uh, in Ireland and um, so maybe that's uh, what Canada is thinking just to give away the ones that are bought uh, (laughs) I I imagine I hope so you know, the the UN has this, or the WHO has this very complicated yeah, um, system, system, right? Where Novax is it? Is it Novax? Covax. Covax. Yeah. Covax. Sorry, you sorry. Know, Covax. Yeah, they use something called an advance market commitment, an AMC mechanism, where the developing nations order set orders early on, so that it encourages pharmaceutical private pharmaceutical companies to create a large number of vaccines and then I guess they create some extras and then um, private philanthropy pays for private philanthropy and uh, then what do they call it Uh, and then official development assistance ODA will pay for those vaccines to go to the 92 countries um, that are not considered developed and who will become recipients of this extra aid. So it's a very complicated system and it just shows how hard it is to organize public health globally with all of these competing private companies, um, private pharmaceutical companies creating yeah. the vaccines. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that China now started to um, export some of its vaccines to some of the developing world. Iraq has already received some batches. Like the Kurdistan regional government once received the, um, several thousands of these vaccines and uh, been used for its people. But uh, whether um, every country try to uh, send a surplus or helping the developing country, we don't know yet. And uh, this is really becoming a question for um, because I think w- it will come to a, to a day that we all have to be vaccinated in order to uh, board a plane. So, you know, well, that's happening in Israel, right? Israel yeah, is starting yeah. to open up, but you have to show that you were vaccinated. Yeah. Many ca- Europe also have- thinks of doing that, but it's interesting how developing nations, but how will people in the developed world travel if they if they haven't yeah. received the vaccination. I mean, right. so I don't know the percentage. Well, right, you don't need a visa anymore. You need a visa plus a vaccination. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Your to try yeah. and travel. Exactly. So I, was, I, I, I can't talk of rates of vaccination, but I think except from, for example, in Latin America, except for Chile, who's vaccinating quite quickly, 
the rest of the countries have vaccinated maybe two, three percent, four, five percent of the population, and at this pace, heading yeah. a second wave, uh, heading to a second wave of of of, of the pandemic. I don't know when will that happen. When will the entire population be vaccinated? Especially those yeah. who are not at risk of anything. I don't think it will happen in the near future at, at all. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think so either. You know, and it's and, and then it becomes a situation, Irena, like you mentioned earlier, where it's just a normalization. Yeah of this horror you know mm -hmm. at some point we'll forget that the developed nations will become vaccinated largely and will you know the world will sort of forget about those people who are still dying from COVID-19 mm -hmm. in the rest of the world I mean that's the fear right it seems you know, like I think Sorry, it seems like it's happening because I was reading an article today on the news I can't remember the newspaper that they were they, they were studying like big nightclub parties in Madrid And I thought Five in the thousand. in the middle of the no night nightclub parties like yeah. big parties of nightclub you know like that would be the last thing you would think would open in a you know in a time of pandemic right so I was thinking wow they they're going back to normal where we are on the contrary like not even not even close to that you know who knows yeah. how much how much longer it will take I hope yeah. not. I mean, I can only hope, right? One can only hope and, and denounce publicly, like we do here at least, denounce publicly this situation of, of inequality. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's yeah, horrible. It's horrible, you know, and, and one likes to have hope that maybe the world will figure out, at least in terms of pharmaceuticals and vaccines, yeah. a more equitable system after this. But, but I don't know, right? I mean, we haven't really figured that out for HIV. Um, treatments, mm -hmm. you know, HIV yeah. is still is still killing many many millions of people worldwide mm -hmm. yeah. every year who cannot access the very expensive drugs to keep them alive, and you know, so we're still putting price tags on people's lives in very predictable ways. Um, Certainly, and, and I think this is something that is really overlooked in genocide prevention is the effects of the economy and structural global structures. On, on genocide long-term, mm -hmm. um, formation of genocidal ideologies and on, on perpetrators' abilities to commit, commit genocide. Um, you know, and some, that's something that the Pope mentioned to Irena and me when we met with him in 2017, in May 2017, was his concern that genocide is become, going to become a naturalized sort of policy for world powers to deal with people who are inconvenient, who are marginalized, who are in the way, um, you know, and who are disliked. Certainly. And the pandemic has exposed how that could start occurring. Yeah, how that how that might happen. And the yeah, understanding No, the understanding that some some people are Uh, less worthy of others, you know, of, than others. I'm, I don't know if I'm yeah. expressing myself correctly, but that people have value, right? And yeah. we know that the human life has value. But it seems, and it, this happens a lot also with with different attacks that are called, some are called terrorist attacks or some others are just called the martyr, depending on who commits it and against who's committed. 
And in the same case is this, you know, some people have less value and some others have higher value in the organization and the structure of the world. And that's part of the ideology of genocide because it's considering that others are inferior. And then yeah. the next step would be dehumanizing them. So why would they need the vaccine or what would they need if they're not as we are, right? And, uh, and this happens in different scenarios. But I think, like you said, and we were thinking, or we talk all the time about this, how the pandemic has put this in a way that, um, that is, is very different, right? It's not usually a disease doesn't come in the middle of genocide, right? It's, it's not the way it is. Uh, usually, yeah. but this disease has has shown uh, how that conception of the world is uh, that the conception of the world is very unequal, and that people have different values, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, with regret. Yeah. Not very. Yeah. Not very nice. What? Uh, <laughs> no. 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 Not at all. And, and it's terrible. And uh, we. We are losing so many communities, and uh, mm -hmm. each yeah. of them under different justifications. And yeah. um, the, the the problem is that the mainstream media tries to get away, especially those medias that are supported by states, and uh, yeah. they don't want to expose the news and inform the world about what is happening. Um, mm -hmm. So this is a very sad. Uh, side of it they always asking for objectivity but uh, when you see the uh, the world from their view then it's very biased because mm -hmm. it's only one side of the story and the main issue the main problem is they construct reality the, they while do the, totally well while the organic reality is mm -hmm. completely destroyed they try to Yes. They, they put all the the efforts of money, finance, power, and media, in order to create a new reality and make people believe of their own version of the of the story. Yeah, so absolutely agree with you, Hoshman. The media yeah. is one of the ways we have today to construct reality, and probably the biggest one, probably the biggest one. Yeah, and unfortunately, so. what's in the media is believed by many, like without any interrogation, right? So, mm -hmm. Well, the media is supposed to be about transferring news, disseminating news and telling people the truth, but now it's become part of the dominant power. Yeah. So it's used as a tool. Um, it's just uh, the same as how the fighters use the guns to kill people. Now mm -hmm. the media uses this type of... The, the, the tool uses in order to... Um, disseminate the, uh, the news in a way that interests to the powerful uh, states or mm -hmm. groups. And, uh, yeah. and I see it as the same as a gun. No, mm -hmm. no difference, but even in a soft way. So the, the thing is like when, when guns and weapons are used, you always see violence. But the way that media is used is completely opposite. You laugh at it, but at the same time, it completely shows you a different story. So this is this is the um, terrible side about the media. Yeah, the media is definitely you're right. Not helping this. It doesn't ask the right questions. You know, sometimes it's sometimes it's even directly influenced. You know, mm -hmm. so Hashman, you're talking about kind of hegemony, right? But sometimes, as in the case of Azerbaijan, we keep finding out politicians 
and media figures who have been paid directly. I mean, yes. it is direct bribery. And of course, Turkey has has done this. You know, I mean, it has perfected this art of controlling the media through you know lobbying groups and through pouring money into you know diplomatic efforts and sometimes illegal um, illegal bribery as well. But yeah, so it, it runs the gamut. Sometimes it's simply hegemony that the, the, the reporters don't ask the right questions. They're not informed enough about issues to report on them well. You know, they don't talk to the right people. They, they don't, they have fixers who, who uh, have their own agenda going. Do you know, so there are all sorts of ways in which information gets manipulated, um, but occasionally it's direct. And often with genocidaires, they're directly manipulating the media so you don't know right? so Azerbaijan has claimed that it is the victim of Armenia you know this is really yes this is all the time it's unbelievable um, how that works it's so frustrating well apart from the media you can uh, see that uh, even the reports written by the international organizations even the Security Council does not re reflect the exact reality. No. You know, so much information that is needed for the public to know is not there. Yeah. But and, it's... Um, yeah. No, I thought it goes back to, you know, what we were saying before, the economic aspect of it. Because before, you know, with this savage capitalism now, the media needs to sell. And that's also, you know, it needs money. So they accept bribes and they need to sell news. And I understand the Security Council resolutions sometimes not reflecting reality because of political interest. And I think when it comes to the media, sometimes, not always, right? There are media reporters and journalists that are excellent, fortunately, because, you know, we get the news from somewhere. If not, we wouldn't be able to believe anything. But it does, it has become, in, in many cases, uh, in too many cases, a commodity, I think. The news is a commodity, so they need to sell news in order to yeah. survive in this economic system that forces them to do so, and that maybe are willing, they are willing to do so, not just, you know, if, if I say force in my sound as, as if I'm removing the responsibility. No, it's a vicious circle. It's a very complex vicious circle, I think. Um, Again, these news, um, if, it, if it's not interested uh, by... The powerful and the mm -hmm. rich people they don't like to buy it yeah. so at the end of the day you know and then the news has to be formed in a way that uh, serves um these powerful and mm -hmm. uh, the state so yeah unfortunate it's very unfortunate of True. course it's a terrible situation it's a really terrible situation so for example with israel um yeah they've they're at a hundred percent of, of vaccination, but they are not vaccinating Palestinians in the occupied territories. Is that <laughs> correct? But what reports reporting on that, right? Of course, is uh, is is vexing. It's a very difficult thing to do um, because of the political situation yep. and the implications of that. And so I just yeah, there's so many groups of people who are being left out of this entire discussion of the pandemic. Um, it's it's a terrible situation and it reflects yes this ongoing problem of of inequality and the differential valuation of life mm -hmm. which is yeah. immoral 
and unsustainable. We've seen where it's led. You know, so to go back, Irena, to your first news item today, right, in in destroying the Yanomami people, mm-hmm. right, we're also destroying land that is very important for mm-hmm. the production of oxygen in the world. It's very important to halting climate change. and. You know, it's Martin Luther King who said a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Exactly. You know, and I think we're seeing the organic um, implications of that, which is, you know, we destroy one group and we're destroying all of us slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's picking up now, but uh, slowly, slowly. It, yeah, it's their turn now. It could be any yeah. any of us in the future. It's, yeah. you know, this is something... A lot of people have asked me, why Iraq, right? And why are you interested in Iraq? You're from Argentina. You have no ethnicity related to it. And I say, why not? That's my response. Why not? It's a responsibility. Why not? It's a human responsibility to care about others. I always believe borders were established, you know, by the divide and rule uh, principle. I don't feel any more Argentine than I would feel in any other country. You know, I feel like I belong to this world and I think that's how we yeah. should feel as humans, that every community matters, every individual matters, and and, then, and of course the environment. That's... Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should not uh, always regard ourselves as a foreigner to this earth. Yeah. No. It's all, yeah, you know, yeah. it's always, it's us, ourselves. Exactly. That make mm-hmm. us, yeah, make ourselves to be a foreigner. Otherwise, mm-hmm. yes, you know, right. yeah. So the whole earth is just made up for the humans to live on. Exactly. No matter uh, where you're I, from. Just come, yeah. When I just yeah. come to a different part of the land, they they just call you a foreigner. Yes. Should, yeah. Exactly. But often the ordinary people embrace you. You know. So mm-hmm. I've always found that wherever I've gone, and it's different if I, you know, weren't white. And all of those things, because you enter a racist society, and mm-hmm. and and you know you you may not be accepted. But I really, everywhere I've traveled, um, I've been embraced by ordinary people. And if you're open, you can make yourself a part of that space very quickly. Yeah, certainly. You know, I always felt at home everywhere in the world. Me too. There's not been place. You too. Not right? one place that I've been that I've never felt. On the contrary, I've felt. That I belong there to many places. Yeah, exactly. That I actually belong. Maybe an ancestor, who knows? Maybe in another life I was born in many yeah. places. Yeah, I wonder about that too. Yeah, right? maybe, right? Closeness. You think, have I been here before? You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, it's interesting. Hashman, do you feel the same way? Have you had the same experience? Yeah, I think um, I do. Um, I do, and um, I've been in so many places, um, but um, in some way or another, it's different when you are forced out of your own country mm-hmm. or yeah. when yeah. you go somewhere else mm-hmm. um, with your own will. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when you're forced out um, uh, from your own country, even if you go somewhere else much nicer, much more like um, suitable for you you always you have a kind of um, homesick feeling right? yes yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so that certainly yeah this is uh, the issue remains with you but uh. when yeah but uh, for example now when you are 
content with your own place and you go somewhere else, you try to look at the world differently, right? Yeah. Differently. So, yeah, but otherwise, of course, of course. Um, for me, I mean, for my side, uh, I went to China, I went to, you know, some of the European countries. I've never, um, you feel some kind of, you know, because of your surroundings, you mm -hmm. feel a kind of, you are foreigner because the way that sometimes they treat you. Mm -hmm. And the most uh, terrible place I have found myself as a foreigner was Turkey. Because oh. they wanted, they, I had to, uh, they, they were asking me, I had to buy um, the suite and talk in Turkish, otherwise they wouldn't understand me. Hmm. So, you know, so this is the way I, I, I felt exactly, and it was in Istanbul, and um, so huh. you, you know that this is, you do get these troubles, these issues, by mm. some type of these people. So I said, um, I speak English, and I, uh, they, they told me we don't speak English. I said, I huh. speak Kurdish, and they just, you know, became very upset with that, if I say, yes. you know, I speak Kurdish. So it became completely like that person it makes you a type of foreigner because you're powerless and it's powerful and if you say anything then you know that you feel very uh, like that. yeah so and Turkey has well developed anti-Kurdish ideology yes, right? so yes. certainly but I think your experience Hoshman could reflect in other people as well those who yeah. flee and those who leave yeah. it's true they're always homesick and those who sometimes experience different discriminations they also would feel uh, Dis yeah displaced in many places yeah. certainly mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah well I think this is a good time to bring it to an end it's kind of a happy note right the thought yeah. That, yeah. that the world is for everyone everyone belongs here everyone's a treasure right every life is sacred those sorts of fundamental values of genocide prevention. Mm -hmm. Well, we um, are going to call it a quits for today. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you for <laughs> listening. Um, please send us your questions. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Patreon. You can find us now on iTunes as well. Um, you can find us at theirockproject.org. And we are the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. We're signing off and we wish you a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.